Welcome to the Dear Love Joy podcast, and it is another special. Woo-hoo. Today we'll be having a conversation with Dr. Julia Shaw. She's got a new book out called Making Evil, and we'll discuss being evil. Wah, wah, wah. How you spelling more? W. M. W. It's one of those, yeah. Mwah, mwah, mwah. I had to try and spell it. No, it's mwah, isn't it? Great start to podcast. Had to try and to, I had to try and discuss with my five-year-old daughter the other day when we were reading the word knock and she has to do it, you know, she has to sound out all the words and she's oh, yeah. going, no, and I was going, mm, just drop the K on this one. It's so like the same as knee. And then she says, why? And I'm thinking, I don't know. Do you know yeah. why? No. But why don't we just now in the English language go, oh, let's just get rid of the K. And just get be, I have no idea. be done with it. Obviously, it comes from uh, Greek or something, and it's that, that's what it is. But just get rid of the K. Very intellectual starts our podcast, Tim. Exactly right. Where we're going this week. <laughs> so she's she's done a book on evil, and we discussed all about that. There's some really deep topics on it, actually. Um, and uh, it's I, not one I for the kiddies. I I see. Yeah, is be careful. Yeah, it's not one for children to listen to. I, I was listening to, I was listening to. I, I was sorry. I was reading the book at the beginning, um, and it, it kind of it's like it's an uncomfortable reading places and it just I'd really recommend getting it she goes through all really big issues like sex and um, uh, murder and slavery and there's so many different issues in the book and then she sort of tests you with what you think about it and, and whether you feel it's evil and then uh, there's obviously with Dr. Julia Shaw as always there's lots of science behind it and so it becomes just a fascinating read and, and um, I hope you agree the podcast is interesting as well um, by the Wait. sound by the way isn't poor quality sound it's the rain that's rain the heavens the have opened up the evil it's because we're discussing evil yeah, exactly. it's gone dark and the rains have come in uh next week or maybe next week or the week after we'll be doing a mailbag special so um if you'd like to get some comments in we'd love to hear them anything you want to say about the show or if you've got any problems we love helping you out. Do remember, I'm um, not trained anything. I'm just a TV presenter. If you take advice off me, you're taking advice off a TV presenter, which, as we all know, is a horrible idea. So you don't want to be doing that. Um, but uh, get as many stuff in. What sort of things are we looking for, Mark? What do we like? Well, uh, problems with work. Quite, are we quite well, like, like... Yeah, Bruce Daisy on, didn't we? So work-related work problems are always good. Yes, Bruce Daisy was on discussing work. If you've got any comments on that, we had... Um, Wrong and Chatterjee, we're talking about health. health. Got, got, yeah. got, we can update you Which on our health. And... We're, you know, completely medically trained to do so. So, you know, yeah. get your... <laughs> Uh, I've got. I've tried to do something else. By the way, well, I'll discuss it on the mailbag issue. But I'm trying to do another health thing. So I'll oh, talk to man, you all about that. Yeah, some new age cobblers. No, it's not. It's not. You're like, well, you know, it's is just it anything to do with your. Uh, is it anything to do with hashtag Beardgate? No, it's not. No, I'm not sure. I have Beardgate next week. I, I, the reason why I grew a beard um, quickly is because um, I just thought do something a bit different, get a bit noticed. You know, you, it's too hard for me these days to change my hair, do. Yeah. Because you change exactly. your hair. Well, you can't. I can't like in the go short or shorter. <laughs> there's nothing. I'm going for no, the skull look next. Yeah, there's, 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 nothing, there's nothing left of my hair to do. And, and I just thought, hey, it's nice to do something different and people notice you again. Back, like, wear your glasses. I've got, I've got a, a massive following more. Wear my glasses. Yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that. That's not a bad shout. But anyway, my following just went up on all my social media things because I grew a beard. Yeah. And suddenly... What was your your favourite? Who does he look like? Uh, 
I've, I, I always like the. I quite like that. I, I always like Captain Bird's Eye. That, yeah. That's always that always makes me laugh. Um, I posted some stuff on social media saying I'm selling fish fingers, which amused me. <laughs> um, I knew Anchor. We had like a little, you know, like QI alarm. Yeah. Do, do, do. Yeah, yeah. We had a bit of that before the Uncle show. Albert's I, one I, I, yeah. I said, yeah, I said yeah. Uncle Albert will come in. And then Steptoe, I said, definitely Steptoe. Corbin was a bit left field. Corbin. <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> so, so like, I'm doing the show and someone sends in saying, Tim looks like Jeremy Corbin. And in my mind, I've got, oh, Jeremy Corbin. I went to sing it and thought, I shouldn't sing that. So I went, oh, Timothy Lovejoy. And then thought, we've probably got to clear that. because. Yeah. And then thought, nah, they'll never recognise the tune. <laughs> I'm so monotone. Um, yeah, so I don't know, Beardgate. Yeah, tell us about... Um, Actually, write in and tell us what you think of my bid or write in and say what you've done drastically that has changed the way that people have perceived you. Yeah. That's all it is, is there's a perception now and everyone just goes, you look really old. I kind of am old. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, this podcast is sponsored by Kuka, pronounced Kuka. So that, so then it's pronounced then it's sponsored by Kuka then, isn't it? Yeah. It's not. (laughs) Yeah. It's sponsored by Kuka, pronounced Kuka, spelt Kuka. The tap that does it all. 100 degree, boiling hot water, cold water and filtered water. Um, the reason why it's pronounced cooker, even though it's spelt quicker, is it's Dutch. Invented in 1973. That's incredible, that is. That's 19- pretty much before most of 1973. The, the British Isles actually had running water. Yeah. They, were, they were already up, up and around with fancy taps. Let me spell this for you. It's quicker. Q-U-O-O-K-E-R. It's the kitchen must-have. I must say, I absolutely love mine. I think you it's do. One I just think it's incredible. You've got tea on tap, and when you're doing your vegetables or your rice or whatever, you just put, or your pasta, you just put boiling hot water straight away, and it just goes. It's it's incredible, and I'm, I'm not going to... I am going to sound like a showbiz ponce here, because I am, but I went around someone's house the other day. Beardy showbiz pods. <laughs> TV Tim. And they, they put a kettle on. Hey, what, sorry? Put a kettle on. Oh, my God. Did and you I was, leave? I, <laughs> I was like, do you not know I'm on television? Were they, were they sto- do you still... No, I've worked really hard to get myself on were they, TV. Were they st- still storing their uh, f- fresh food in holes in the, in the garden? I might as well have been. <laughs> might as well have been. Um, anyway, no need for a kettle anymore. Uh, anyway, um, cooker, the tap that does it all, immediately dispensing... 100 degree boiling water. You can choose between a separate boiling water tap with accompanying mixer tap or a quicker flex or fusion. A single tap for hot water, cold water and boiling water. That's the one I've got. So you can either have one. That's the flex tap you've got, isn't it? Yeah, because you can either have one which just does boiling hot water which sits next to your tap or you can do what I've got which is a tap which has your hot and cold and it's got this flexy thing but also when you press it you get your your, um, boiling hot water out of it as well which is fantastic. Um, is it safe? I know you're thinking that, Mark. Is it safe? It's it ultra safe, safe, yes, and a super efficient and available in a variety of different designs and finishes. Mark reckons mine is, um, what did you say it was the other day? Something is it brushed steel? Brushed, yeah, I like that. Brushed steel. I think it is brushed steel. Um, and, Mark, if you thought um, cooker... Can you stop taking these questions right out of my mouth? <laughs> Mark, if you thought quicker, sorry, cooker, spelt quicker, was wasteful, think again. The painted high vacuum insulation. Wait, let me interrupt. Tim, is it wasteful? No, no, Mark. Mark, if you thought cooker, spelt quicker, was wasteful, think again. The painted high vacuum insulation ensures that cooker's standby usage is just three pence a day. 
for even more efficiency, choose a combi tank, a single amazingly economical way to produce both hot and boiling water. No kitchen is complete without a cooker, spelt Quaker. Quaker, exactly right. Yeah, that's amazing. So we, we thank must you be... for sponsoring us. Yeah, thank um, you. That's if you, if you if you want to look into their product range, go to quaker.co.uk. Yeah, and that is amazing. That was great. No, I think I think I think we we've done something quite special there. What we've done is we've done a full read and made it sound like all of the outtakes we might have done and squashed them all together. <laughs> <laughs> what is so lovely about Quaker? Um, uh, sponsoring this podcast though is I actually really like the product and Mark uses it every single time he comes around to it so I do so it's that it's, it's nice uh, anyway let's get on with this podcast now um, we'll speak to you after it this is uh, Dr Julia Shaw talking about her book Making Evil this is just a guide to modern life modern life is hard to get just right it can frustrate you and annoy and if it does Right into Dillard Welcome back, Dr. Julia Shaw. Uh, third time. I've third got, time. I've got your present. Hold on. I've, oh. got, I've kept it in the fridge, though, because it's oh. the third time, and it's a hat trick. Ah. Champagne. Ooh. It has to be bubbles. Exciting. Thank to, you. Are we going to get drunk? Is that what's happening? <laughs> yeah. I was going to get you a football, but then I thought, what would you do with a football? Because <laughs> girls don't. Oh, oh sorry. That's on my uh, What's thing here. happening? Sorry. Um, yeah. So, so what do you mean? No, girls play football. I'm saying, uh, what would you do with a ball? Would you want a ball? Would you go? Uh, I do have a garden. Would you go for a kickabout in the garden I mean, if I, I bought it to you? You know what? Um, this weekend I learned that I, so I'm from North America, as you might have guessed. Yeah. Um, and I, we don't have netball. That's just not a thing. We no. don't divide girls and boys into the kind of hoops they throw balls into because it's a weird thing to do. Uh, and uh, it turns out I'm really good at netball. Are you? Yeah. What position? I had no idea. Uh, we didn't play like we didn't play teams, but I'm really good at throwing the ball into the hoop in netball. Ah, okay. I, turn, I don't need a backboard. Did you play basketball? I did as a kid, but just with friends, never, yeah. never really. But I was much better than the other people I was hanging out with, which I Were didn't you? expect. <laughs> okay. Who knew? Athletic. Well, maybe I'll buy you a ball next time then. You're bound to come back on again. <laughs> so the last first time you came on, you were talking about the memory. You're an expert on the memory. Any more? The memory. The memory. Any more news on the memory? Anything we need to know? Any, any more learnings on that? Uh, it still sucks. Uh, still unreliable. <laughs> um, still be careful. Uh, the, the one thing that we then talked about the second time, which is the, the update that keeps con- sort of continuing, uh, is I, I launched a startup which helps people record their memories of important yeah. emotional events. And I use AI to help people remember yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's the um, talk spot or spot? What do spot. You mean? spot. Yeah. Yeah. And the website is talktospot.com. Talk right? to spot. Okay. Yeah. Quickly explain that. That's on the second podcast. And how's that going? It is. Uh, it's going incredibly well. Uh, we now have companies that we're working with. Um, talk to spot is a, uh, so we help people report and record workplace harassment and discrimination, mm. uh, any kind. So it's not just about sexual harassment. It's so uh, men, if you will, can yep. use it too. Uh, obviously, it can also be sexually harassed, but it's it's not a thing for women, is I guess what's important for me to get across. It's for any kind of harassment and discrimination. And it walks you through a chat interview, um, which is completely anonymous and conducted by an artificial intelligence. Mm. And it's effectively the perfect memory interview to help sort of offer a pragmatic solution to turn your memory into evidence, and then you can anonymously submit it to your employer. Yeah, because as you always point out, the memory... It's not very reliable, is it? I always quote you, and people don't believe me when I say when I say look, the memory doesn't work that well. They're like, no, my memory's brilliant. Everybody thinks their memory's amazing, but yeah. 
Yeah. Although when you talk to aging adults, uh, there a lot of people fear that their memories are getting worse, and there it's also sort of like, no, maybe you're just getting less confident and appropriately confident in your memory because I think younger people are overconfident quite often. Right. It must deteriorate though, does it? Like everything. Certain kinds of memory do. Um, so effectively, you become a bit less flexible. Uh, your brain becomes a bit less flexible as you age, but um, there's ways around that and effectively it's just changing how you learn a bit. Is there anything you can do to improve your memory as you go uh, as you age? One of the big things is to try and keep it flexible, try to keep learning. So trying to keep doing new things is right. one thing. Um, because what you want is your brain to be flexible enough to overcome the I mean, effectively from the age of 25, your brain starts to die. Yeah. (laughs) And so what you're relying on Mm. is that you're not going to get more neurons, probably, although there's been some challenge to that recently. No no more brain cells. But you are going to be able to reconnect the ones that you already have. And so what you want to do is you want to keep trying new things, keep trying to find new ways for those brain cells to connect. Mm. And that can be things like learning languages. That can be trips. That can be just making sure you don't get into a rut. I do. I brush my teeth left-handed because apparently that, Nice. Yeah. I'm right-handed. But Apparently you, that helps. But if you it? only do that, that's not enough. So right. effectively that'll work for a bit. And then your brain goes, I know how to do this now. I'm not making new that's connections. That's it. I find it, I, I find it just as normal now to brush my teeth left hand as right exactly. hand. So I've ruined it. You've right, ruined okay. it. You've ruined it. All right. Can you just move your pop shield down just a tiny bit? That's it. So yeah, that's yeah. perfect. All right. You've got your book out, Making Evil, which I've read. Um, it's it's a great book, I've got to say. If if you like thinking a lot, it gets you thinking a hell of a lot, this book. Uh it did make me feel uncomfortable though in various places. That's the and, point. Yeah, and also it um made me realise how hypocritical the human race is and humans are and how we're uh following trends often, but we're all what we all class as evil is different all over the world and also we have different I as as time moves on, what we believe is evil is is also is also changing. What made you write the book in the first place? Um, yeah, so so the book is called Making Evil: The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side, and it comes out on February seventh in the UK. Um, it, what made me write it is that I I'm a criminal psychologist, so memory is part of what I do. I particularly am interested in memory from a, an evidentiary standpoint. So how do we remember things uh, about sort of crime, for example. So eyewitnesses, how do they remember a crime? How do victims remember a crime? How do perpetrators remember? Uh, and and how it all goes wrong in courts. So that, th- that thread is there as well, that sort of criminal psychology. But ultimately, the reason I studied criminal psychology was because I wanted to understand why do people do bad things? Like, why do people hurt each other? Why do people, um, why do people murder each other? Why do people, or why does one person murder another? Uh, why do people commit terrorism? Why do people commit sexual assault? Why do people, I mean, there's so many different types of bad behavior. Why do people eat meat? I mean, this can go into lots of different directions. Um, and I was the head of the Department of Criminology at South Bank University a couple years ago. And I created a course for my students called Evil. And that was sort of the the seed that started to grow into this book because I realized that even if you study criminology at a university, even if you're talking about related topics all the time, you often don't actually get to talk about sort of the core things like what's happening on the news, sort of stuff right now that interests every single person. And so I wanted to give my students a way to do that, to discuss these things and to critically engage with them with science as well. And I couldn't get them to shut up. I mean, I would talk about like, what is evil or who is a terrorist? Could you become a terrorist? Or I would do thought experiments like that. And I divide the room into two 
and say you argue for and you argue against randomly. And uh, they would get into heated arguments. Mm. And it was fascinating. I think for them, it was a sort of world-changing or certainly thought-changing experience where they could see, even in my own class, even amongst my peers, we have very different ideas around what these things are and how we should deal with them. So, so I wanted to broaden that experience and give it to a wider audience. And so I taught that two years in a row, and then I wrote the book. Why do you think we like evil so much, watching it? Watching it. Yeah, so we've become obsessed with narcos or, or whatever it is on TV. We like, we like things where there's lots of murder involved, don't we, and something dark. And We love it. We love it. I mean, it, also, if you look at bestsellers, I mean, if, like fiction, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, almost all of them have an undercurrent of evil, of manipulation or of crime or of uh, sort of a heist. I mean, there's different, different versions of it. Um, I think it's when we consume evil through the media, I think there's a safe distance that we have from these things that we find fascinating, where you probably wouldn't, or most people probably, I mean, I would, but yeah. most people wouldn't want to sit in a room with a psychopath or with a murderer or with a terrorist. Um, sort of sitting across from an actual human being who's done these things is a scary thing. But through the filter of a movie or a book, you get to engage with the thought processes that that person might have and ask really important questions about yourself and about the other person without having to actually put yourself in danger. Yeah, so but why do we want to live through that? I mean, it's... It's, it's exciting. It, Our uh, brains are primitive and we look think, for emotional stimulation. Do you think we're looking through it because we want to experience it without experiencing it? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And you can't really get into someone else's head in any other way. I mean... You can sort of, especially fiction, can take you into the brain of the person who is the protagonist, right? And so you can go down that road with someone else and really have sort of an empathetic experience, potentially. Uh, that being said, I think that quite often, we it's almost like going to the zoo when we watch sort of crime on TV, when we watch true crime in particular, so things that actually happened and we watch them being reenacted, it's like, ooh, look over there. There's this thing I want to look at, but I'm, you know, I can, I can engage with it. I can enjoy myself in the process because it's emotional. There's, it's interesting potentially. And then I get to walk away and never think about it again. Mm. I don't actually need to be empathetic. I don't actually need to think, am I capable of these things? Am I potentially able to be in that position that this person's in now? I remember reading American Psycho years ago um, when I was younger and thinking, should I be reading this? Because it's quite horrific in places. Were you seeing yourself in it? or? Well, no, not really. <laughs> I, I, and then I started thinking, wow, the author, he's kind of really laying himself out there by, I can't remember who wrote it now, but whoever wrote it is. Brett Easton Who? Brett Easton Ellis. Brett Easton I, I just thought it's interesting because he's now basically saying in his mind, he's got some really warped stuff going on. And, you know, uh, you sort of cover it in your book a bit. Are you evil by thinking evil stuff or do you actually have to do the stuff? Mm. So is the author actually evil for being able to think up the revolting things that he thought up in American Psycho or is he only evil if he does them? I mean, I, I don't think, so we've used the word evil a couple of times now, but I don't actually believe in the core concept of evil. So I don't think evil exists uh, as an object or as a person. Um, I, I think that we overuse the term, we use it to mysticize and sort of shroud and veil sort of uh, 
individuals who we don't understand and we don't want to understand. And it's usually sort of the end of a conversation, right? So you'll, you'll be talking about someone or something and then maybe someone will say, well, that person is obviously evil. And what that person's trying to do is to stop the conversation and say, well, obviously we all agree. You know, we've, here is my final you know, statement and we should move on now. And really that should be the beginning of the conversation, right? We should start engaging with that word at that point and say, well, what do you mean by that? Mm. And how do we understand it? Rather than sort of villainizing and monsterizing this individual. Um, is someone evil for thinking evil? Uh, I think it's really important for us to think through uh, thought experiments. So could I do this? I think that fiction, again, is a great mechanism through which we can do that. We can think through horrible acts because, and this is what I write about in the book as well, uh, just like murder fantasies are adaptive. So a lot of us at some point in our lives are going to fantasize about killing somebody. And uh, you laugh. And in the book, I actually no, I approach it more I, lighthearted I, as well. I told you, I found it uncomfortable because I believe I'm saint-like, like everyone does. I think I'm a really good person, right? So who do you want to kill? And then you suddenly read stuff where, you, where you're putting a mirror up to me a bit. And I've wanted to kill people in the past. I've been Ooh. so angry that I'm like, ah. And and then I realised, well, that is just the you know I'm thinking through the act. I'm not not, not actually doing it. Actually, I was going to say Elon Musk wants to do that um, brain lace stuff, doesn't he? Where we're all online because we've got a lace in our brains, mm. which which we can put our thoughts straight online. When people start being able to see each other's thoughts, I think we're going to. I mean, this whole concept of evil is going to change completely because the stuff we think about probably is X-rated a lot of the time. I imagine. And, oh yeah. And and we're all virtue signaling our asses off out here going oh i would never do anything i'm such a lovely person and mm. then the thought process you can actually see into people's heads mm, i'm not so not so sort of sure we're all so saintly so yeah so so the idea of killing someone we all go through <laughs> do we not well not all of us but m many of us uh so according to research on this most of us have fantasized about killing people but it's and it's things like you know fantasizing about throwing your boss out the window you know you've had a bad, <laughs> bad day at work and you're like oh just you know a little little kick or 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 maybe and i know this this all sounds a lot worse but i mean the amount of times that i have fantasized about let's just say silencing a baby on a plane because oh, it's really? going off and wailing oh, that doesn't and bother I'm just like me. oh my god just shut up uh i mean th those are small thoughts that we have <laughs> uh, and they manifest in different ways uh and popular targets are our bosses our, our loved ones uh, road rage road rage oh, oh must be road one. rage yeah 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 um and and uh, step parents is a big one really kind of like in, in like cinderella like wanting to kill your evil grand your, your evil step parent yeah um, but we don't go through with it most of us luckily mm. and the question is, why do we have them in the first place? And some evolutionary psychologists argue that they're adaptive because effectively what you're doing is you're thinking through the situation and what the outcomes would or could be. And luckily, most of us, if we have that capacity to sort of think things through and plan, we decide, oh my God, those outcomes are terrible and I definitely don't want to do this. And then we don't engage in that behavior. So it's... It's, it's sort of like a trial run in our brains, which is one of those beautiful capacities that we as human beings have that probably a lot of species don't have in that way that we can really think through complex situations. Mm. And that's interesting because in America, where they have firearms, lots of guns, mm. they can actually take it one step further a lot easier. And as, as you point out the study in your book, the um, guns actually, it's not people who kill people, it's 
guns which kill people because you actually have the thought process. If you haven't got a gun, there's nothing you can do about it. If you've got a gun, you can go and do it, can't you? And it's Especially when we're talking about killing lots of people. So unfortunately, things like school shootings. Um, I mean, it's, it's much harder to stab a lot of people quickly um, without getting stopped by somebody or, or someone fighting back and, and somehow being unable to do it than it is to shoot a lot of people. Um, I think, yeah, it's the, the, the problem with these kinds of issues is that we, we need barriers between our thoughts and our behaviors. And effectively, the, the fact that we have to sort of think things through, or ideally can, and we can't just sort of, in a moment of weakness, pick up a gun and start shooting because we're angry right now. But in a minute, we might not be, and we might have made a completely different decision. That matters. And so those buffers, and including sort of the kinds of weapons we have available, are really important to help us make better decisions. So um, we, we, have, we all have the propensity for doing awful, awful, awful things. And I think we need to assume that we do, because if we don't, we're totally underprepared if we find ourselves angry or in, in situations like Yeah, as I say, like in, your, in your book, you go through a lot of stuff that we have to... Um uh, I don't know, everything from um, sex, capitalism, animal cruelty, murder, rape. It's all in there. It's and all in there. Yeah, it is. And it's, it, the way you do it is fantastic, though, because at no, at no point you're pointing fingers. You're just examining the science around it. It's a really good book for, for thinking, as I say. Um, when you talk about those school shooters, they all tend to be uh, male, mm-hmm. white, mm-hmm. Um, lonely. Mm. Is this is this, uh, these people have they tur- are they I mean you don't want to use the word really evil but let's use it just for the sake of this interview but the, have, have they become evil because of this because of the rest of the population what what happens to these people to what happens it's tough to say I mean it's uh, unfortunately last year was a really bad year especially in the United States for school shootings in terms of the just there's been so many more than we've had in the past. So there seems to be an increase in the number. Even as I was writing the book, this number was increasing. And so I write in the book that it's still, despite that, a really rare event compared to most other kinds of crime. So the amount of school shooters there are is obviously always going to be too much. It's always an atrocity, but it's nowhere near as many as people who commit other kinds of violence. And so it's harder to study. And it's harder to find commonalities between these people because there just aren't as many of them. Um, so it's, it's difficult to know. But one thing that we do know is that loneliness does play into it. Um, but we also need to be careful not to overstate mental health issues. So I think that it's easy to stigmatize people who are mentally ill. And I talk about sort of creepiness and our intuitive associate assumptions about people who look or act differently than we are. And how we need to be careful not to interpret Mm. you know, fear effectively into a situation where someone's just different. Um, and I think that the press has done a good job or if you will, a bad job, uh, linking mental illness with things and even things like depression with school shooting. And so now there might be this extra stigma added to people who have depression or, or have other mental health concerns that are related to that. Um, simply because people keep hearing this link and they're like, Oh, you know, if you're a a teen who's depressed, are you going to become a school shooter? And obviously Mm. that's an absurd assumption to make and really harmful potentially to people who, who have mental health issues. So we need to be careful not to link things too heavily. Um, but we also need to remember to see the humanity. And I mean, these are often kids. Like Mm. I think you're right that society does glamorize also and give notoriety, especially in the U S to serial killers and to, to mass shooters. And so that might also have sort of a, a push to, to 
see that as a real option and to see that as maybe a way of becoming a celebrity. Um, all the way through your book, you talk about dehumanizing, though, um, mm-hmm. when you're actually doing an act of evil you often have to especially if it's murder you talk about hitler a lot in it as well where you know you you have to dehumanize people and then it becomes easier to then start killing them Mm -hmm. and i suppose that's a process that these school shooters will go through and uh you know people who go involved in the murder at some stage they have to take away the idea that the person they're killing is is equal human to them is that right Often, yeah. I mean, it, certainly dehumanizing makes us capable of great harm. I think it's it's probably the source of most of the things we really label evil. So, so when we move into things like torture, when we move into sadism, when we move into those kinds of, or, or large-scale um, well, murder and, and harm, like, like in genocide, uh, there certainly dehumanization has an, a critical role to play. You just, you can't see the humanity in someone so, if you're going to be yeah go on so did hitler call um uh, jews cockroaches is that what he did he, he used did. lots of dehumanizing words right but, right he he considered he, he compared them to insects he compared them to animals he compared them to i mean rats i mean there's there's lots of right. com- like very intentional comparisons that he used uh to help us not think or help his population and his supporters not think about individuals as human beings at all. Right. And, and never mind the fact that they're framed as a problem. So this is the other piece of it is I think that dehumanization is really critical, but then there's also the just reframing people. Not you, you're not thinking about people. You're thinking about problems. Right. And so it's sort of the same when uh, individuals kill others for it, it out of ideological reasons. So it's a separate but related in that they're no longer seeing people as people. They're seeing them as capitalism. They're seeing them as problems. They're seeing them as something that's threatening their worldview and the way that they think the world Terrorism you're talking about. I'm talking about terrorism, yeah. right? Uh, but also just, uh, I mean, and that can come in various forms, of course. It's not yeah, just Yeah, I remember having an argu- <laughs> argument with my mom once saying, um, look, ISIS don't think they're evil. And she was, of course they do. She couldn't work out. And really? I'm like, I was going, of course they don't. They think they're doing the right thing. That's right. what they're doing. And it's like, they, you know, they think that they've, whether you think they've been brainwashed or whatever, they think they are doing what's right. That's why they can commit such atrocities. Yeah, I think most humans think that they do bad things for the right reasons most of the time. Right. Uh, occasionally you do things out of sadistic reasons, so you just want to see someone suffer. Um, we have that on a smaller scale, uh, on a personal basis, when we have schadenfreude, when you sort of see yeah. someone at work or who yeah. you really don't like, <laughs> and you see them fail. fail like, oh. yeah. um, so that's a really, really small version of it. But it's the same sort of foundation, that occasionally we do do things intentionally just because we want to harm someone. But... Even there, it's much easier to do if we dehumanize someone or if we don't, if we see them as a problem rather than a person. So whilst we're on Hitler, the I like all the experiments um, that you come up with, the concepts that have been, you know, historically everyone's heard of them, but they're kind of cool. Uh, we could Not go all through of them, them as well. some of them, some of the experiments, some of the oh no, some of the yeah, the things like would you kill baby oh, Hitler? Yeah, yeah, that, and the, and then the trolleyology, mm-hmm. I quite like those as well. Could you can you talk us through a few of those? The the, the theory is. If you had a chance, would you kill baby Hitler? Is that that's yeah? Kind that's of the a thought experiment. Yeah, right. I and and I guess it's a it's a question that if you don't take it too literally and you don't sort of go well, you know, but how? You know, there's there's lots of assumptions. It, it really exposes people's assumptions around um, what they think happens when a baby is born and whether babies can be born evil or not. So I mean, there's I think people who say yes, I would definitely go back in time and kill baby Hitler. 
um, often what they mean is that there is this guarantee that baby Hitler would have become adult Hitler. So it's sort of pre-programmed yeah. what was in the brain. And if they say no, then they might say, might be thinking, well, A, either... Sorry, there's somebody at the door. I'm going to go it, and answer. It, I mean, like, for myself, I, I waver a bit, but I mostly say, no, I wouldn't kill baby Hitler because I generally don't think killing babies is a good thing to do. I think that's, that's a bad thing to do. And, and we don't know. And, and because the, the situation and the political climate at the time was such that, I mean, there could have been another person who would have played a similar role um, who would have come out of that environment. So I think whether we actually needed Hitler the man or just the concepts that he was growing up in and uh, some sort of figurehead who could have been somebody else, uh, that's the question. Yeah. So I, I would, yeah. Nature I would, or nurture? I, I would do, well, I want to talk to you about free will, but we'll do that in a minute. But I, I would have definitely not kill baby Hitler. You wouldn't I, kill No, because I agree with you. I wouldn't want to... Go and kill a baby. (laughs) I can't see Kimasa go through it. Do the trolleyology, do a few of those, because they're interesting. Yeah, I mean, the trolleyology actually fits in well with the the Hitler question, partly because um, now with the, if you don't believe in killing babies, would you not kill baby Hitler because you don't like the fact that you would have to kill a baby or because you don't think the baby would grow into necessarily grown to the man he became both yeah I both. Think a lot, okay. yeah i think there's a lot of factors involved in what made hitler into hitler okay you because you could argue i mean look, i don't know enough about it but you could argue you could kill baby nietzsche and then that would probably help the process as well <laughs> you know so or kill nietzsche's sister who, yeah, or the who, or the scientists who started well the problematic scientists started talking about eugenics so. yeah um. exactly so you could you there's a there's a potential a whole lot of people you could kill to stop it happening it was yeah. kind of the how far the, back do you go as well right yeah is that what, <laughs> Hitler's mom yeah exactly <laughs> it's like the 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 perfect storm's the, the wrong expression to use but the imperfect storm or whatever mm. which created that monster which happened i think so right right oh the so. use of word monster maybe just for people because he's still a human being i feel like we need to be careful also not to excuse him and sort of Create, oh, cast yeah. him as this okay. mytho- mythological creature. Yes. Um, I think it, we, there's always a potential for another Hitler kind of person to emerge. That's um, a really good point, yeah. So. Yeah, so we're, I'm making it a problem by doing that, aren't I? I think so, yeah. yeah. No, I, you're right. I think then we, we, we assume that you know that can't happen again or there was this one-off sort of non-human entity that happened. Yeah, we keep doing that with everything, don't we? So especially any sort of terrorism atrocities. Mm. We, we think they're one-off and they keep... Or school shootings, they just keep happening and happening and happening and... And that you're right, they write them off as evil monster children, and they're just not, are they? They're just not, exactly. They're humans. They're if, humans, if, yeah. If something's happened to them. Um, okay, so tell us a trolleyology one then. Trolleyology. So trolleyology has to do with thought experiments around ethical dilemmas. So there's a whole field of study that looks at how people make ethical decisions and what influences this. Now, the reason I asked you whether you wouldn't kill baby Hitler because you don't like killing babies or you don't like the thought of killing babies. I presume you haven't killed any, so you don't know if you'd like it or not. Um, That's sort of a bit of sadistic (laughs) imagery there. Uh, But let's let's assume that um, you're taking that perspective. Now, with trolleyology, when you ask people, for example, if there's an out-of-control train coming Mm -hmm. down a track... And you have the potential, and it and it's hit, it's heading for five people who are tied to the track and can't get out of the way in time. And on a diversion path, there's one person tied to the train. Now, would you let the trolley just go straight, or if you had the chance to pull a lever, 
Would you pull a lever that would divert the train and kill the one person to save the five? See, I know the answers to all these. I've thought them through after reading your book. I, do you want to know my Go for it, go for it, go for it. I wouldn't pull the lever. You wouldn't because... No, no, because that's me murdering one person. <gasps> Whereas if I let it hit and murder five people, I haven't murdered anyone. Oh. Now, the other one is I'm driving the train, isn't it? It turns into driving the train. Yeah. Now, if I'm driving the train, I'd go for five people rather than one... Oh, sorry, one, one person. person. <laughs> one you person. You really want to kill this. One person rather than five people, definitely. And then if it was my relative who was the one person, I'd I'd still go for the five people. You'd still go for the... What if the five people are all your family members? And the one person isn't. I mean, usually it's the other way around, but sure, let's go with that. Well, then I'd go for the the one person. I'd, I'd always save my family first. And, right. and I did this with my children the other day, and they're like, "What if there was a hundred thousand people, or your daughter?" I'd go, I'd go for the hundred thousand people, because <laughs> obviously you're always going to want to save your family. Not obviously, but I, you know, I, I am saintly, but I'm not that saintly. Would, would you go with the same way or not? Would you, would you always know. save the masses? I uh, I think what uh, the interesting things that emerge are that yeah, I mean, you don't need to change very much. You even just need to change that you know the five people. The, you know, as you said, sort of 100,000 people uh, and you just know one person. You even just know them. Like you're, they're your friend. Yeah. You might still go for the, uh, the option to, to, to kill the 100,000 <laughs> and save the one, uh, which is really quite problematic if we look at it structurally. Um, but it's, it, it shows that there's a sort of inherent selfishness in ethical decision-making, I think. And it's, we're often acting actually because of how things would make us feel. And we think that, so if it's all strangers, yeah. if it's sort of this idea that, um, you know, the five versus one and I don't know anybody, most people in experiments, uh, both in virtual reality, so where they're actually fi- pulling a virtual lever or in thought experiments like we just sort of talked about, where you're just ex- describing the situation, most people say they would kill the, the one to save the five. So most yeah. people say, yes, yeah. I would pull the lever. Really? Yeah. Well, then you're a murderer. Well, well... I mean, you could argue you're a murderer. I mean, you're not, a not really. If you're not touching it. If you just go, well, there's nothing to do. But that's with me. the consequences to you again. So that's that's you thinking about the. Con- so why why does it matter if you're a murderer? Because you might go to prison. No, just because you're like I actually I actually saved those five people, but I killed one person. When it's it's not in your control, just but, just let. But it is, and being a bystander uh, and letting people die is also you could argue mm. it's not murder quite in the same way, but it's certainly. There's this great like, thought experiment that someone did. I heard once where you, if you're walking past and there's a some man standing with a foot on a child's head in a puddle or something, you go and help him, and you try and get you know you go and get your shoes dirty, you do anything to try and get the kid. I think it, or the kid was drowning in a puddle. You had to go in. You you. You had to you get your shoes ruined and everything else, but you'd get the kid out of the puddle and it doesn't matter what you would do, but you'd do it. Yet when you're watching TV advert and it says send $10, it was an American thing, to save a load of children in Africa or somewhere, mm. you go, I'm not interested and mm. carry on. It's like, hold on, why? And that's, again, it's how it makes you feel. Mm. You're so distant from the from the advert and the African children, whereas that one right in front of you means so much because it's right there in front of you. It's right there, yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly the perspective matters, proximity matters, uh, how personal it is matters, who's involved matters, and this idea that, so again, in, in experiments, people say sort of, obviously the greatest good for the greatest number. Mm. That's my ethics. And they sort of take this high horse and say, you know, that's, that's just who I am. And then you say it's your daughter and they go, well, obviously I wouldn't kill my own daughter yeah. no matter what. And so again, it's, 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 it's a selfish morality that we, we 
might not accept as selfish. Yeah. Uh, but it is. It's about how it makes you feel, well, not how it actually affects society potentially. And, and humans, we're strange creatures because we're, we're making up all these rules about what's right and what's wrong. One mm. we're really juggling with at the moment is uh, veganism. It's a real juggle for us all. And, and you know, it, it seems to be a, a, a growing movement of people saying animal welfare, we don't want to kill and, and eat meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, it's something we eat to keep us. We've always eaten to to for survival. I mean, I'm not a vegan at all. Mm. Um, where are we going with veganism? What do we think about that? It, it, are we? Or, when I interviewed the man years ago, I interviewed the man who made the artificial meat for the burger. He said the reason why he was doing it was because of animal welfare. He said in the future we're not going to want to kill animals at all for mm. eating. Do you think we're going that direction? I think it's complicated. I think the, I think if we ask ourselves, so, so this is the personal example again. So yeah. let's say there's a cow, or let's go cuter. There's there's a piglet outside your door, yeah, and you're hearing it squeal, and someone is killing it. Mm-hmm. Now, you would probably run outside and go, "Oh my God, what are you doing?" Mm-hmm. Right, and possibly call it animal welfare. You would you would think this person is a sadistic monster. You would have all kinds of opinions about yeah. this person who's killing this adorable piglet. Um, now, I think that we're quite hypocritical in how we approach meat, and that as soon as it's not on our doorstep, we forget the amount of cruelty that's involved in creating meat and turning animals into meat um, in terms of how they're kept, in terms of how they're killed, in terms of how, you know, the whole process has really, really problematic pieces to it that if you saw them firsthand all the time, you probably wouldn't do it. I mean, most people would even struggle to kill any animal in, in person, mm. never mind a cute one or one that's, you know, been kept. Even in the wild, we struggle. Uh, and sort of think I wouldn't want to get my hands dirty like that. Now you said we've always eaten meat. I feel like at least there was a lo- there was a long time in humanity where we at least understood what meat was. Like we could see it. I think there's and the problem. And we eat a lot less. I think there's the problem is we don't see the death of the animal and we're not around it. And I think that's where the problem's coming from now. Well, that's one issue. So, but and and our consumption of meat is is way higher than it's ever been. Partly because it's easier to create meat, uh, and because we've removed this this hurdle. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I I think that's one issue. And then there's of course the sustainability issue. So the morality. I think a lot of people would say, you know, probably I don't think animal torture is okay. Um, And so there's a a little bit of guilt maybe in eating meat along with that. But more than that, I think it's just completely unsustainable for our planet to certainly eat meat in the way that we do now. I think you'll go to artificial meat. I'm sure there'll be artificial meat. I also think that there's just going to be a down-regulation of how much people eat. What happens Um, then if we go to artificial meat? Is that vegan? I mean, if it's made in a laboratory... I think it depends on your definition of vegan. Right. So, I mean, if you think it's about killing animals, you're not killing an animal. So maybe it is. Yeah, vegan. the hypocrisy of me, I'll, I'll eat an animal and then there's a spider in my house and my daughter will go, ah, there's a spider. And I'll go, oh, better take it outside. Don't want fl- <laughs> to flush it down the toilet and kill it. And it's like, hold on a second. I'm just sitting there eating, eating meat. Your book has made me realize that. But then I started thinking I've got moths at the moment and they're oh. eating all my clothes. And obviously I want to kill them. I'm yes. sorry, but my evil thoughts, but I want them out of my house because all my holes, jumpers have got holes in them. Is it all right for me to destroy 
moles. What if a vegan gets head lice? What happens then? Are they allowed to kill them or what What? What happens? What if you, a vegan gets a tapeworm? I think you're taking... What happens? I think it's easy to, to uh, make veganism seem ridiculous. Oh, I think. no, I'm not at all. Um, I'm not at all. I'm just saying it's it's there's a minefield when you're... you're, you're you know, I always remember going on holiday to Vietnam and they, there was a, I was in a jungle type area and there was like a noise and I was going, oh God, what is it? And then I went to the guy, is it a tiger or something? I don't know whether tigers are in Vietnam or used to be. But just, and he goes, no, no, we've got rid of all the big cats here. It's fine. It's really good now. It's really safe. It's good. Smiling. And I was going, what? Well, you can't do that. Yeah. And then remembering that we got rid of all the wolves and bears from this yeah. country because uh, we don't like them. They Because we like to go for walks. Yeah, and they all are... <laughs> Undisturbed. Well, yeah, exactly. So we're so hypocritical. You know, and someone says, let's reintroduce bears. And I'm like, uh, don't think so. <laughs> don't think so. So yeah, we're very hypocritical with it. Or again, it was, an, it was an uncomfortable read with me trying to decide where I morally stand on all these issues. But I do eat meat, so... Yeah, but I think... And, and I mean, with veganism too, it's 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 a... It's about cutting down. It's about thinking about, at the very least, making active decisions. I think a lot of the time when we buy stuff in general. So, I mean, I have a whole chapter in there on sort of money and how money changes our relationship with morality. And I think that just being a conscious consumer is a really important first step. Just, you know, you can make the decision to kill the baby piglet outside your door or have someone else do it, but at least recognize that's what's happening Mm. um, and think about it and say, how do I actually feel about this? And have an honest discussion with yourself about what that means rather than just mindlessly, you know, buying fast fashion and meat and things that you know are likely to harm the planet or maybe came from really harmful conditions. Hmm. I wonder what would happen if everyone did start thinking about it. I mean, who's the who's the? If, Hopefully, everyone will be reading well, evil well, or we, making evil, yeah. and so they will they will have these discussions with themselves and come up with some better ideas. If we did use use the word evil, I think the person putting um, chickens in cages, battery farming, and and the mass farming, I think that is the, the more evil side of it all. The people, but they, that person wouldn't exist if you didn't give them your money. Yeah, I know, but but if they have less stock, you, then the, you vote with every dollar you spend. Yeah, but they let less stock, the prices go up, meat becomes more expensive, we value it more. What happens is they've made meat really cheap, mm, right? And so you know, I think if if meat was really expensive, if you you know, if every time you bought a chicken it was twenty quid, you'd be going, Christ, we better make the most of this chicken, you know? And Which right. you and that, that used to be the case yeah, right? did, as well. Yeah. So right, I mean, it, meat was a sort of like a a bonus thing like a, mm. something you would look forward to um, and that's just not the case anymore well they said um, uh, my friend um, uh, knows a lot of people in Kenya his wife's from there he used to go there and they, they, he used to say to me I don't know how true this is by the way but he used to say to me do you know how they keep their meat fresh in Kenya their goats and stuff and I said no and he goes they keep them alive they kill them and then eat them and then they eat them immediately because they don't have refrigeration where he, his, his actual um, wife's family are from and then when he goes there, they give him all the fat because that's the best bit mm. of the of the meat. And he's like, I don't want to eat this. And he's, <laughs> but he's like, that's what. So we they've got a really different relationship with the animal, and it's it, it seems to be a we've gone so far away from that, which is what I sort of thought after reading your book. Well, yeah, and I mean, never mind the environmental consequences, the health consequences, the sustainability, mm. even just the morality is, is problematic. But how do we feed with them? Um, you know, the the if if we all go vegan tomorrow how do we do this what do we have to do chop down masses of rainforest we need more plants no animals take up way more space is it is it is it more sustainable way more sustainable um you were talking about uh capitalism there the real evil of our 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 world (laughs) should we say um 
it is it is actually quite it's it's, it's an interesting bit of the book um because you give give a very good examples here making money does seem to be one of the evils doesn't it making money isn't evil in and of itself or or isn't problematic in and of itself i think that what can happen though and what we see do does happen in especially large organizations is that again it's really easy to dehumanize people who work in either in the organization or to have as your in-group the people who are in your company and as the out-group the world. And so what I mean by that in the first instance is that, for example, if you're thinking about the bottom line and all you're thinking about is money, is that you're just thinking about how much a person costs to to keep employed. And so you might fire someone just based on a number, not based on who they are as a human being. So it's easy to forget the human being behind the number. And worse than that, there was a car which came out, which if it got hit, this is in your book, which if it got hit from the back, it was a Ford Pinto. Mm-hmm. If it got hit in the back... I like it, that you've opened the book and you're now I, about well, to I'm read not, out of it. Are you going to give us a, a, yeah, a, a wee reading? Uh, <laughs> You'd be the first person was, to do a reading was, out of my book. I was just going to give you the stats because it's amazing. So they, if the car got hit from behind, it would explode. And they did a calculation that changing it, uh, I'm looking for the figure here, changing it would cost a, uh, $11 per car. Um, and it would save about 180 lives per year is what they decided. Then they decided the court cases. It would be cheaper not to do that and pay off the court cases, and that is absolutely horrific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then I'm just looking for the bit that was estimated between 27 and 180 people died due to this issue, Um, which is, I mean, any deaths, it's like they've actually got blood on their hands, haven't they? Mm -hmm. But they know that, and that's capitalism for you. Like, "Mm, come on, let's... Let's not spend the money because we can pay off the court cases instead. How mad is that? It's mad. And it's also, it reminds us that as much as we think that we are, you know, my life is sort of priceless, uh, that no one could sort of spend X amount of money to, to buy me. Yeah. Um, our body does have a price tag, certainly in, in courts. Like this is an, a seemingly impossible task that courts have to do all the time is if you lose a limb at your workplace because your workplace wasn't structured properly, for example, or someone attacks you or you or they or negligently, they, they hurt you in some way. Like if you lose a limb, you get an X amount of money for it. Yeah. And there's sort of very sort of, you know, your, your right arm, it costs more than your left arm. And your if you're right-handed and, you know, your pinky costs less than your index finger and all these things. And so like every piece of you has a price tag, almost like meat, really. Uh, and we forget that. And when you, when you break it down and you look at these lawsuits and when you look at sort of the fear around uh, financial loss, then you can, you can say that human lives are worth money and how much and whether it's, quote, worth it to do something as simple as fixing an engine. Yeah. Um, another good example is the HIV drug with this guy who I was fascinated by. I can't remember his name now. Shkreli. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think... <laughs> Pharma bro. Yeah, but I, I think people have missed the point of what he he is really because he's a horrible man who's who's clearly having fun. He basically bought this drug and then how many percent did he put up? hundred and something percent. More than that, dr- yeah. A drug that people needed and then he just hiked the price up mm-hmm. and then just went... Ah, tough luck I want to make the money that's the way I do it but but I've always got this problem with this whole ownership thing we've got which is this this um, patenting and this uh, copywriting of everything it's mine I own it pay me if you want to listen to my record pay me if you want to do this pay me pay me pay me pay me pay me everyone wants paying for everything and there's it's it's a greed thing I think and he's just basically shown how ridiculous it is because you can buy anything and just hike the prices up um, 
people don't ever, uh, you know, say to these the, the really big pharmaceuticals, why are your drugs so high? They can bring it down and reduce their profits, but they don't. Mm. They're all trying to make money at the end of the day. He's just he's just highlighted it in a really big way, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, the, the problems with wanting to make money and wanting to always, uh, I think also this idea that we always need to keep growing, so growth, the sort of you need to keep growing the company and it needs to be this upwards trend. It can't just be static. You can't just be making the same amount yeah. of money or have the same amount of employees. This idea is that economies need to keep going upwards um, and that's unsustainable in its own right. And so it sets up sort of the system to fail, I think. And with uh, drugs and pharma, I think we see, yeah, I mean, it seems like obviously these things should be much more accessible. Obviously, life-saving medicine should be made as widely accessible as possible from an ethical standpoint, you think. Uh, but uh, it's companies who run it, companies who also need to fund their research, and they have lots of ways of justifying why they charge X amount of money for each each of their drugs. Um, and you're right. I mean, occasionally someone comes around and you go, well, that's, that's ludicrous how much this costs, and that is completely unaffordable for most people. But then again, so is healthcare in the U.S. for lots of people. I mean, like there's very foundational structures around just keeping people alive that we have made inaccessible effectively to huge amounts of the world. And the ethical issues that raises are enormous. Yeah, I don't want to come over as a, a complete hippie here, but when you've got um, both, uh, Jeff Bezos for earning $191,000 a minute, <laughs> and then you've got people who can't pay for their health care, and you're going, and, you know... And, uh, the system's uh, fucked. The, 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 <laughs> that, well, yeah, in, the, in that world, the, yeah, which the, is the world we live in. Chelsea midfielder signed his contract, and they worked out he was going to pay more tax over here then Starbucks and Amazon put together, you're going, oh, well, this is not working anymore. You yeah. know, you can't have that much money. And then, and then you Bill Gates, who gives away all his profits to the Bill Gates Foundation. Everyone goes, that's amazing. He's saving lives. It's like, hold on. Do you need all that money? Mm. Yeah, why? Can you not make your employees' lives better or the, the consumers' life better by not charging as much for it? And it, it just seems that the, the, the game of collecting money seems to be the big one. And we love it. Mm. We love listening to how much you know. You've got to if you if you earn a dollar a minute from the day you were born, you'll be. It takes you to your three thousand five hundred years old before you've got as much money as Jeff Bezos. You know, people <laughs> love doing those sort of stats at people, and he's like, you're, you know, it's just it's it's nuts. But mm. we we love it. We think it's amazing. Yeah. Rather than hold on, mate, what are you doing? Well, and there becomes this cult of personality around the people who do it, who achieve it, who win the game, right? Yeah. Who have as much money as possible, and we go, oh, well, I want to be like that. But I mean, system systemically, you don't like. We don't want lots of people. Like but then you get a bi guy who buys buys a drug and hikes the price up, and yeah. goes, oh, that guy's disgusting. Right. He's disgusting. Right. He's not earned nearly as much as all the other guys are doing it. So you know, again, it's one of those things where we're you know. Um, you look at yeah again. well we are I mean everyone's hypocritical if you're one of those people I don't do drugs but if you're one of those people who do, does coke you've got to understand that it's always amazed it me from. yeah because yeah. it's always amazed me with the London set who, who I know you know obviously hung around because I live here for a while and the entertainment set who are all really I don't know, really into their health food and their campaigns, doing lines of coke. Some kid died in Mexico or Colombia, mm. you know, or some family got absolutely uh, to supply that crap to you. Mm. And it's like, but we like, to, as humans, we like to, including myself, we like to turn blind eyes to things mm. that we, we, you know, we like to just pick a cherry pick, don't we? Yeah. Our moral issues that we like to. 
yeah, yeah. to do. So um, the one though that really got me the, the biggest in your book, um, and I'm I'm going to get on to sex in a minute. I know that's the bit everyone wants to talk about, and the one that I'm struggle with two them, chapters with the most. no less two on, chapters on, on sex. sex yeah there is but the one that i can't get my head around at all and the one that is the one that we should you know everyone should down tools and say we need to sort this problem out right now is is slavery human slave trade human trafficking human slave trade uh, in your book there's a fact which says there's is a, it's a staggering fact there's uh, estimated 21 million slaves still in the world 21 million mm-hmm. i mean what the hell is happening that we're still allowing this to happen. Mm. Um, so a lot of slaves in the world, uh, I mean, they're, they're not necessarily, or they're, they're just not the, the, the types of slaves that we sort of picture from sort of American history, for example, yeah. or even British history. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they're not working in fields, for no. example, in the same way. They're also not kept in the open as much usually. So you're not sort of proud of the fact that you're a slave owner and mm-hmm. you don't get to live in a mansion on a, in a field somewhere in Alabama yep. um, and, and sort of showcase the fact that you have these these individuals. Um, but there are lots of parts of the world, including in the UK, where people um, force people to work for them for no money and uh, take away their rights. So, I mean, it's... And, and, and in some parts of the world, it's it can go through generations as well. So you can be born into slavery because, for example, your family was so poor that they couldn't pay off some service they needed or some some person for something they did for them. And so they that father or that... Your parent effectively became a slave through that. And because you were born within that, this assumption is that the debt is still not paid. And so it's, it's framed within this sort of transactional model of you're paying back something to me that you owe me somehow fundamentally. And therefore, I own your, own your, own your life effectively. So one of the big things we see over here is the sex trade, mm. um, human trafficking for, for that industry. Uh, when we find it in this country, uh, we think it's morally incorrect and we prosecute and I assume that's what we do in all these countries. But are there, not just not just in the sex industry, but is there is there areas of the world where cultures where slaves are sort of more acceptable by the masses? Yeah, there are. I, I mean, as soon as you have more case systems or you have... Uh, a different kind of classism than we have in the UK, um, you, you see sort of these hierarchies where people feel like they're justified being in power and they're justified um, dominating or, or enslaving people who are in the lower classes. Um, so I don't want to get into specifics. I also don't know enough about the international differences yeah. around this. Uh, but I do know that the topic is um, hotly debated also in terms of immigration policy. So, I mean, you, you'll see at airports at now uh, campaigns around sort of if you see something uh, that we're, that you think might be a course of situation, someone's trying to force someone across the border, for example, um, you should speak up. And here are sort of the signs you need to look for. And I think that's really good because that's one of the main way, ways now that people who enslave others work yeah. is they effectively drag someone across the border, take away their passport. The person can't speak the language. The person doesn't have any contacts. And it's really easy to conceal the fact that they're not there freely. Mm. Again, you talk you talk about the mental state of people. The person who's doing the um, enslaving mm-hmm. thinks they're superior, thinks they're probably doing the person a favor. Mm-hmm. Um, giving, it's giving, rightfully so. Yeah, justified. It's their, yeah, yeah, that's what they're allowed to do. Yeah. And then the person, the victim, thinks they're inferior mm-hmm. and are scared. Scared, yeah. Fear is a, a huge, Fear. huge motivator. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm actually reading a science fiction book right now that also has that as a topic. Right. And it's uh, the sort of idea that it's, it's, yeah, this fear of, of being 
harmed physically as well of course I, always, I interviewed Harriet Harman on this podcast and I said to her you know it's one of the biggest challenges for politicians in it the juggling between um, tolerance and equality um, you know we've, we're, we've got to tolerate all different cultures including some of our own weird and wonderful ways over here with our class system our uh, school system sometimes and some of uh, the, the you know the, that sort of stuff and then we've got other cultures coming in different religions we want to be tolerant of everything but also we want equality and we want to make sure everything's fair and so it's a it's a tough juggle that I, i'd be careful drawing a, that comparison though because i mean slavery is not inherent to any country i'm not yeah i'm not i'm not i'm any... not sorry i wasn't making that careful. About, i wasn't making that about slavery i was making okay. that about just it's it's weird that we've got different dif- expectations different what's yeah people behavior. Are, which you point out people have different cultures and they mm. they grow up in different ways don't they in the world mm. so people have different ideas of of what's what's right and what's wrong yeah and just different time periods i mean if you look at the history of great britain yeah i mean we've done some awful 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 things yeah uh and just sort of this the moral superiority the, that we feel because we're not doing it right now yes <laughs> uh or not doing it as much right now uh is is kind of it's almost funny because like in the not so recent past we were the ones who were invading people's countries and enslaving them and you know doing all kinds of horrible things um and maybe that time will come back. I mean, there's there's lots of we can go regress, unfortunately, as well. We don't need to. We can't just assume that our morality is superior or better than everybody else's. This is why to use the word evil, it's it's an ever changing thing, isn't it? It's an yeah. ever changing um, idea of what we believe is evil and what you know. If we were to go and enslave people now, or even just go and attack somebody's country and take all their resources, mm. we'd all go, "That's horrendous." But years ago, we thought that was a great thing for us to do, mm. and we might so, again. Yeah. Do you think? No. I, uh, <laughs> I think anything is possible. You do? Uh, yeah. You do in this climate. Okay. Not just um, in this climate. Just, but, but yeah, especially. this. I mean, this political climate right now is a gong show. It's interesting. <laughs> it's, we live in interesting times. It is interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting time at the moment. Um, I think social media is really interesting as well. I think that's, that's um, technology is coming along now and well you do a whole bit on your book and technology but that's coming along now and that's that's changing the world we live in dramatically we're gonna have to make our own mind up about um how that's changing it and and uh try and navigate our way through it well and as i discussed in the book we also need new ethics and there's new new vulnerabilities that we have from a sort of even fundamental crime level sort of how we can be attacked you know someone can unlock your front door remotely potentially or turn off your car or uh steal lots of money or your identity i mean there's so Mm. many different ways we can now be harmed um that have nothing to do with being in front of someone just come back to the hypocrisy there's one bit i can't remember where, i might be able to find it in your book actually where you say where you say it's illegal in this country to pay someone for sex mm-hmm. though it's not this is brilliant Porn. though it's not illegal <laughs> to pay to watch somebody else be paid to have sex right so, so porn so, is legal and and prostitution is not yeah whereas whereas the woman's still getting paid or the man but they're, they're getting yeah. paid to have sex but it's 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 mad isn't it? i never thought about it like that <laughs> <laughs> it is bad. Um, it's, yeah, it's, and I mean, here, just to, to, to qualify that a little bit, um, prostitution is sort of a gray area here. So the, the laws work generally to um, make it harder to have pimps, yeah. but they are trying to protect uh, prostitutes. But in other parts of the world, I mean, you have absolutely no rights and no police sort of by your side if you're a prostitute. But porn, 
Totally fine. fine. You're an actress. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we move on to sex then? Because that was the... It was a the, good transition. Yeah, it was. This, this is the one that I, I just I found it really fascinating because I got an insight into what goes on in people's heads. Um, so there's... there's uh, obviously, we've got to work out what we think is right and what's wrong when it comes to sex. That is a minefield. Mm-hmm. Um, because... There are no right or wrongs, or are there? I mean, there's subjective things that you think are right or moral or wrong or immoral. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think there's an objective standard for really much of anything. I haven't got the facts, but there's quite a lot of people who like uh, BDSM. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why? Why? Why do we like it rough in bed? Uh, I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey, I think, put BDSM on the, the main stage. Um, but it's or, or into, our, into our bedrooms in, in the form of books, sort of a soft entry to BDSM. Um, why do we like to be tied up or whipped or, or chained in bed? Um, mostly, it's, it ha- I mean, it has to do with power, but not in the way that we might think. So when you, if you're not interested in these kinds of fetishes, then you're... There's about half of the population that is. So really? you're, you're in good company either way. Uh, but if you don't, if you just watch BDSM and you're not, if that's, that's not a fantasy of yours, it can be hard to understand why you would want to be, you know, I, I, degraded in bed or, or be the one degrading others yeah, in bed. Yeah, I honestly have no idea about it. I believe in equality in the bedroom, Dr. Judy I believe Shaw. in equality in the bedroom as well, but it's about no. losing, giving over power yeah, effectively. Yeah, I don't get it. So researchers suggest that this has to do with this sort of letting go. And if you give someone else the power to control you in a safe, I mean, BDSM generally has very safe is a safe environment, right? Yeah. So you have safe words, you have clearly defined relationships, you have clearly defined acts that you often negotiate ahead of time as to what you'd like, uh, which is really important because as soon as it branches out of that, you, you need a way out to say sort of actually, I, I want my control back and I need it back. And that's a really critical element. But to hand over control is to be able to relax and to sort of not have your brain getting in the way of enjoyment. And I think that's why so many people like BDSM and research supports that, that it's, it's hard for us to turn off our, our prefrontal cortex, the, the decision-making part of our brain, and to just enjoy and not think about, you know, image management and what do I look like right now? And you know, is this angle good? Or is he enjoying this? Am I enjoying this? Like, you're thinking too much. Right. You need to turn that off sometimes. Okay, so then you, you move on to, um, which, again, it's something which is quite, Oh, fascinating really F- rape fantasies a mm. lot of women have rape fantasies mm-hmm. i was unaware of this <laughs> okay what does that i mean clearly the women don't want to get raped right. in real life so so t- so a rape fantasy is well as as it sounds uh the fantasy of uh being forced to have sex now that doesn't mean that people picture themselves sort of in a back alley getting you know uh, assaulted by multiple people, for example. That's not what it means. It can mean, uh, f- for example, having someone who you know you fancy but is in a relationship or you're in a relationship and they come in and they dominate you and they force you to have sex with them, but it ends up being a pleasurable experience. So usually rape fantasies have that sort of the piece of, I don't want it, but I kind of do, but I'm not supposed to, but I'm not, right? The sort of, I'm not allowed and I'm not giving consent but ultimately I enjoy it. There are some rape fantasies who get that get really dark. Um, and those 
correlates sometimes with people who have real experiences with rape, which is unfortunately also an astonishingly high number. So it's an it's but an why? it's an awkward conversation though, isn't it? When you it's an awkward thought process. The idea that you you're fantasizing about being raped with the rape culture we have in the in the world, and we don't want. Mm. And then there's the the fantasy. It, is it hard to distance them, um, separate them? Sorry. Um, I think so. So for one, I think it can lead to women feeling incredibly guilty about the fact that they have these. So I think most women seem to have rape fantasies of sort. Um, they don't realize other people have these. They don't realize that's a normal thing to have. And so they feel guilty about the fact that they have them and they go, what's wrong with me, right? Because as you said, n- nobody actually wants to get raped. That's not, that's not no. what these are about. Um, and so again, it's, it's leaning more towards the BDSM thing about handing over control, about fantasizing about someone forcing you to enjoy yourself is usually the theme. And so it's, um, but, but you're right, it, it brings up lots of complicated thoughts and feelings and, 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 and questions around, around how do we talk about these kinds of issues and make sure they don't actually translate into reality. Yeah, you know, I think we could all say rape is evil, even though we're not trying to use the word, but <clears throat> interesting when you talk about it, you say, you know, <clears throat> it could be some, you know, someone's son, brother, father, uncle, whatever. It's you know, it is a person who's doing the the actual raping. Um, the, or the, sister or mother. Or yeah. Okay. But um, yeah. More more men. Yes. More men. Um, let let's. I suppose the question is is why they're raping. Because it's it's why would you want to rape someone? What is going through your the process of your head to, to actually do that. And I'm not talking about the guy in the balaclava mm. who's probably got the sort of more mental issues, I suppose. I don't, actually, I don't know. Is it all the same? I don't know anything. Um, so as you probably noticed, and a lot of people probably will notice if they read the book, when they read the book, because you're yeah. obviously all going to pre-order this book I, immediately. I, w- I would recommend reading it because, I mean, we're just skimming the surface here. There's so many interesting things you bring up and so many great experiments in it that make so you think. Yeah. Google it right now. Make yeah. it evil. <laughs> Science behind you, Andy Stark. Yeah, do it. Buy it. Uh, but uh, back, to, <clears throat> back to this very important topic. Um, I, I separate the chapter. It, it, so the, the chapter on sex and coming out, which also touches on things like homosexuality and sort of cultural differences in how that's approached and the coming out process and bisexuality. Um, I separate that, including with rape fantasies and sexual fetishes. I separate that from rape. So rape is in a different chapter entirely. And that's because I think rape isn't about sexual orientation. No one is born a rapist. Like you don't, it's not like homosexuality where you're like born with this predisposition that the only thing Mm. that, you know, sexually interests you is rape. That's not a thing. It's a structural issue where I think it has more to do with acceptance, with toxic masculinity, with cultural um, positioning around, A, dehumanizing women potentially and treating them as objects rather than people, uh, and specifically objects for sexual outcomes um and uh, and and the systems that allow those kinds of dynamics to to flourish um and so but, but is the on. is the end goal for the man to come uh, often it's well sort of right i mean there is an element that has to do with the actual sex itself but i think more of it has to do with power and dominance because i think the ability to have sex or to come, let's say it even more broadly, there are other avenues to which you can achieve that, right? You don't even need another human being. So that's obviously not 
the only reason because there's much easier ways of doing that. It's about dominating another person and intentionally dehumanizing them and using them for, for your enjoyment. Um, so it's, it's so as lots of people say, it's not really about <clears throat> rape. Isn't really about sex. It's well, about much more than that. I, I don't. I don't really want to talk about it because it's going uh, the, the actual incidents of it because it's going on at the moment in the courts. But there's there's often happens incidents where they're sportsmen, and they're the recent one. They're playing a game to see how many sexual partners they can have. Bands used to do it as well hmm. a lot. I'm talking about men here actually, and they're they're you know they they do this thing where they're playing a game to try and see how many different women they can and and that's dehumanizing the woman i suppose is it and it's just that's objectifying a a power thing yeah it's a power thing and the fact that you have you can have your friends around you your your Mm. bros around you let's go with sort of the the lad culture kind of idea um who are you know encouraging you to think about people in this way and and encouraging you to treat people in this way and i think that that is incredibly toxic and has huge influence so in the in the book, I also talk about how there were um, there was an experiment where we had well not we researchers had people try to distinguish between comments rapists made and quotes from lads mags, mm. and people couldn't tell the difference. People didn't know which statements, which of these toxic statements about women in particular, were from actual rapists and which ones were from lads mags. So it's. Like the the, the that language turn, is starting that to change. That hasn't turned that many men into rapists, has it? Do you think? I, I think is it it's, a growing thing? No, I think it's no. diminishing. I think that there is more awareness. I, I mean, I'm not sure if the incidence of rape is diminishing over long periods of time. Yes, right. it has, but whether sort of this year, uh, I don't know. But I, I do think the language that we're using is changing. I think that's really, really, really important because how we socialize our men is has everything to do with it. Definitely. Uh, is do you think these men? wake up after their trial a year later and go wow what did I become or do you think that because you say they're not born that way so do you think they wake up we're going why did I do that I was a I am a son a brother a father or whatever why did I do that I think most don't think that um rapists are really great at justifying their behavior and their thoughts um and it's the same with uh, child abusers, for example. Like, if you look at the thought patterns of people who mm. sexually abuse children, it's they're warped. They they don't correspond with reality. They they adhere to things like this person or or this child, unfortunately, is is asking for it. You know, mm. they wanted this. They they said no, but they meant yes. I mean, all this stuff that I mean, at this point, seems so obviously incorrect, given the sort of stories we're hearing and the narrative we're having in the, in the media right now. Uh, but they still, they're still there. Hmm. This idea that you know, women want to be dominated. And then, unfortunately, thinking, oh, well, you know, the rape fantasies. And this is, where that, this is why I separated them. So, right. well, women have rape fantasies, so obviously they want to be raped. Well, no, those are completely different things. Um, and you need to make sure that you don't link things that aren't true. Hmm. That's why it gets confusing, I suppose, the messages. It gets confusing, but again, I think most. So you of see it's... Fifty Shades, and everyone's going, "Wow, it's amazing!" And then, and then it's like, "Yeah, but uh, it, so, women, women don't want to be dominated," and but they do in that film. It's like you know, what's well, consent? Yeah, it's all about consent, and I think it's. I haven't read the book, by the way. I've seen the film. So, so I mean, Fifty Shades is great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. It's is it? so poorly written. But is, is um, it? Oh God! Have you seen it's the like film? a fourteen-year-old wrote a. It's so bad. I haven't seen the film, no. but the book is written very, very simply. Um, and but I, I mean it's it's just consent. I mean it's it's really quite easy. Yeah. It's 
if someone is and, and asking about consent is sexy like how do you like it? what do you like do you like do you want me to kiss you like you can weave that in it's this isn't like a mythical crazy thing there are easy ways of making sure that the person you are engaging in sexual activity with is actually wanting to do the same with I, you. I think I'm a bit of a prude, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> but it's probably also, um, isn't it? I, I can't imagine force, trying to force a man to have sex with. Like, that would be so unsexy. And yeah. so I feel like we need to change it's, the mentality. It's interesting. Everything we talk about, men are evil. Uh, you know, women... Um, you can say men are evil. <laughs> no, I know. But everything we talk about, I am doing. Maybe you're not. I am doing. It's all men. Men are the ones who go to schools and shoot people. Men are raping generally. Men are doing this. Disproportionately. Why is it? Why is it men? Why are we evil? Or are we? Or is, <laughs> it, think, is it equal? Again, I think a lot of it has to do with socialization. A lot of it has to do with the kind... From, from small on, we give... We treat boys and girls differently. And we allow boys, for example, to, to be more outgoing, to try stuff, which is good as well. But it comes with sort of not asking them to inhibit themselves, not asking them to, you know, be careful, monitor yourself, be empathetic, be, you know, emotional, be emotionally available, express yourself. Those are things we reserve more for girls. And we go, you know, girls, be careful, you know, manage how the world sees you, manage how you behave, control yourself. With boys, it's sort of this idea that they need to run free. Um, and the problem is that we, we reinforce violence. We assume it's normal. We assume that things like testosterone are why men are more violent rather than the fact they've decided to be violent. Um, and this compounds over the years. And I think that's, that's how we build men. And I think it's an atrocity that our prisons are filled with men and we should be tackling this much more head on. Does testosterone make me more violent? Not really. No. It's still ultimately your decision to be violent. Um, All right. Okay. So you're there. My decision. (laughs) It's your decision. Do do you believe, we discussed this last time you came on actually, do you believe in free will? Yes. You do? Yes. I think it's necessary to believe in free will. Okay. (laughs) Um, Because I discussed this last time you came on actually, when they find out that someone murdered because there's some problem in their brain, Mm. then do you go... Can you stick them in prison for it or not? Can you, you know, when they, when you realise it was a blood clot or something which sent them, and then when you realise that people are born certain ways, mm. are they? Which we can get back onto the the the, the sexual thing. You're you're born. I understand you're born a paedophile and you're born to like having sex with animals. I can't remember what that's called. Zoophilia. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, that, we don't know as much about zoophiles, but. Um... Yeah. <laughs> so you're so you're born that. So that's not free will. But you're probably oh, so born that, with your sexual orientation. Yeah. Yeah. So then, is how many things in your life are free will, or how much? How much are you just? How many decisions are you actually able to make yourself? Yeah. I mean, even if you're born with a certain sexual proclivity, you still have free will to decide not to act on it. I mean, that and that's where the difference comes in. I think that okay. we're born with a lot of predispositions. We're born with a lot of tendencies. We're born with a lot of sort of foundations for behavior, but to actually engage in that behavior, that's the next step. And that's also where the criminal justice system comes in and says, this is you being active and deciding to do something. And that's where the problem comes in. It's not not the core. It's not the sort of human sort of foundation that's the problem. It's what you do with it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and certainly there are people who are predisposed um, to engage more in violence or where it's easier for example if you're low on empathy it's easier to hurt people um but that doesn't make you hurt people and if you're grown up if you're brought up in a bad environment where sort of violence is normalized it's easier to be violent because you have fewer inhibitors sort of stopping you and you might think it's normal but it doesn't make you violent it's these are all contributing factors that together 
sort of craft this individual. But I still think that it's it's most useful to assume that we have free will in the end in that last sort of second before we engage in something. I always, I always can't, when you talk about punishment and stuff, I can't ever stop thinking about how we used to hang people in this country or you know uh, 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 france the guillotine mm-hmm. and people used to turn up and watch it mm. i mean that's free will to decide to go up and watch someone die and yet people loved it and it wasn't thought of as a bad thing at all to go and watch someone get hanged or or, or guillotined to death it was yeah. like uh, now we'd think you're pretty evil to go and watch that wouldn't you that's, well but but we still see people do it online i mean if someone gets beheaded I mean, A, the press might show it. And, and yeah. often it's the sort of, we've censored this. And then one press channel lets out the full video and everyone goes, well, it's out there now. Uh, and they might give it a little trigger warning and then just go with it. Um, I mean, you see, and, and on, the, on the internet, of course, it's just unfiltered quite often. You just, you have the ability to click on a link and see horrible things that actually happened. Have you watched uh, And them? people do. I haven't actually. Nor have I. I believe self-censorship is one of the most underrated things ever. If you're about to go and watch a movie and you don't like horror movies, don't watch it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and it's the yeah. same with beheading. I don't want to watch it. Well, and especially with our... Um, I mean, social media is weaponized by organizations like ISIS mm. who are incredibly social media savvy and uh, are incredibly manipulative. And they want clicks. Like, that's what they want. They want to instill fear they want to spread their message and the way they're doing that and the way sometimes the press unfortunately helps them do it is by spreading that as wide as possible and so by clicking you're actually encouraging them to do that more because just like with any other sort of media uh, likely the things that get the most likes the things that get the most clicks are the things that you're going to try and do again because it was quote successful so we need to be very very careful in what we're endorsing online Hmm. so just like we vote with every dollar we spend we also vote with every click we sort of use online just going back to um uh you do a whole chapter on um there's three different uh, three different terms but which i didn't really know but apart from the one pedophile mm-hmm. um there was it, it used to, honestly i recommend anyone read this chapter because it just changed because we automatically assume pedophile evil and yet we send mixed signals because as again you you say in the chapter about porn you're allowed to teen porn mm-hmm. And yet there's a magical age where it's all right to fancy a young woman mm-hmm. and then, or boy, I suppose, I don't know how that works. Or, and then a, a, a bit earlier in their age, it's, it's not okay. Um, but then you also go on to talk, which is, which is an interesting thing in itself, but then you also go on to talk about how um, people are born paedophiles. Mm-hmm. So... I read an article once, I was telling you just before we started this podcast, which is really interesting, it's paedophile said, uh, and, and you talk all about this in the chapter, he said, I'm a paedophile, but I've never molested a child, I'm not a child molester, I'm not a sex offender, but I can't tell anyone I'm a paedophile because I'll ruin my life. And he'd written this, and I'd never thought about it like that before, that, and he said there's a difference between being a paedophile where you uh, have um, sexual fantasies and actually carrying them out. Is this true? Yeah, there's definitely a difference. Um, just like, again, just like with any sexual proclivities, you you don't have to act on them, um, and you and there are certainly lots of pedophiles. M- most researchers would argue most people who are predisposed to be pedophiles or have a sexual preference for children or teenagers. And this is what you were saying with the sort of uh, so the other, let's disambiguate a little bit first and sort of say not all pedophiles or pedophiles, as you would say, are the same. I mean, we sort of treat everyone who has sex with someone under the age of, let's go with 16, maybe even 18, uh, 
the same, which is absurd. We don't actually mean that. Like if you, if you see how we sexualize 16 year olds and 17 year olds, it's fundamentally different than how we treat four year olds. Like it's just not even in the same ballpark. And a lot of us are sexually attracted to teenagers. And, and that's probably quite normal because they have what are called secondary sex characteristics. They, they, look, they, they look like they're almost adults, right? And they, they are able to reproduce. Like they have all these markers that make them, quote, sexy. And it's not to say that it's okay to engage in sexual behavior with those people, but to like looking at teenagers, for example, is much, much, much more widespread than looking at pre, prepubescent kids. So either 10 to 13 or... Uh, proper pedophiles who are people who just enjoy pre- pre- actual prepubescence. So anything even up to sort of the, the blooming years, um, usually under the age of 10 or, or 12, depending on the kid, um, that's a pedophile. And that's actually often not what we're talking about when the press labels someone a pedophile. They're talking about someone having sex with a, with a 14-year-old, which, which is different. Um, so, so those are called febophiles, people who aren't sexually interested uh, predominantly in teenagers. Um, the question was, what was the question? Well, it's just because I want to, like everybody listening to this wants to go, a, a pedophile, I hate them, they're mm-hmm. evil, get rid of them. That's what I want to do. I don't want to imagine it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want it anywhere right. near me. Yet it's there. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable for us, but people are born this way. Mm-hmm. That's what you're telling me in the book. They're born this way. So right. they've not, there's not free will. They haven't chosen to go down a line. And, Who would choose that? I mean, it's, it's, it, you are absolutely it's easier for me censored to, by society. Yeah. You, you know that you can't talk to anybody. You, I mean, it would, it's a horrible pro- proclivity to have, really. So in my mind, I want them to have chosen it so I can say they're evil, get rid of them, right. da, da, da. But then, then as you point, you make out in the book as well, is that... You know, they can't go and talk to people because it's mm. in the law, immediately you're put in a register and you have to report it to the police if someone says I'm attracted to children. So you don't, so, so there are hotlines um, and, I, and I mentioned this, there's sort of, there is a, a budding area of trying to support uh, pedophiles who, especially non-offending pedophiles, they're generally called. Um, and you, you can go to a therapist and say, I have a sexual interest in children, but you do need to be very careful because as soon as they think there's an actual risk to children, then, in fact, they, they do potentially need to report Which you. there always will be. Well, there, there, well, and it will depend on the therapist to decide at what point you're actually at risk. So usually things like planning, so saying that you're planning to like target someone, that's when. Uh, someone needs to step in. Uh, or, I mean, definitely if you say, oh, you've already done it. But the problem with that is, of course, that we completely isolate people who desperately need help. Because if uh, you have nowhere to go and you don't know how to stay a non-offending pedophile, what are you going to do? And so Germany now has, is one of the few countries in the world that has a, a ther- therapy that you can go to where you can talk about this. And the therapists guarantee anonymity. Um, with with some some limits, but mostly the idea is that it's better to help someone talk it through so that they don't continue offending rather than just isolating them and not giving them any support. What do you think we should do? I think we should definitely humanize uh, pedophiles. Some some statistics put the rate up to, and especially if we're talking about febophiles as well. So we're talking about people who are interested in in, in children under the age of eighteen or even twenty. Um, there we we see that like two percent of the population hasn't has a, a predominant or exclusive interest in people of that age. It's a huge amount of the population. And a lot of people don't act on it. And so 2%. they'll pick 2%. Christ. 
So they'll pick uh, people who look young. So that there's, again, ways around it. So maybe, you know, you might be a 25-year-old male or a 40-year-old male and pick an, a 19-year-old female who looks, if you're heterosexual, and who looks like she's 14. So, I mean, there's different ways of doing it or you might fantasize about something while you're doing it. Uh, again, the sort of non-offending side. But a lot of people do also become offenders. And we know that the rates of child sex abuse are really high. And we know that this is a major problem. And typically, offenders are people we know and we love and are part of our family. And that's why we trust them with our children. So like the, the single most common perpetrator for child sexual abuse is a male uncle who's not the father. So a, ma a male relative who's not the father, sorry. So usually an uncle uh, or, or someone like that. So someone mm. who has access, who's, who has sort of trust and who uses that um, and maybe for the first time in their lives also has access to a child. Is it pretty tough for you to, to align yourself to that though, empathy for pedophile? I'd, I'd really struggle with that because it yeah. is such a taboo. It is, but it's Just, really, really, really important that we don't forget that these are human beings who need our help. And I think if we, if we actually want to keep our kids safe, which I think most of us probably do. Um, I don't even have kids and I want to keep kids safe, mm. uh, even though I sometimes fantasize about throwing them out of airplanes. <laughs> um, it's like, this is the only thing you, like you have to do this. Yeah. You need to engage with these people and help them not offend. So I think that's, that's where I am. Uh, I have been in, in a courtroom once uh, because I also work as an expert in courts, uh, specifically on the topic of memory, but quite often I get called in for ch historic child sexual abuse cases. Um, and especially where there's a question of whether this happened. Uh, so, so questions around memory and false memory and therapy mm -hmm. and problematic therapeutic techniques. Um, and I've been called some horrible things by lawyers. And uh, one case in particular, uh, the judge got so fed up that this person kept calling me a pedophile sympathizer. Um, really? And in my head, I'm like, but I, like, I don't even see that as an insult because I think that they're human beings. And I think that's a really important way of looking at the world. But it gets back to the core bit of your book here is I, I struggle to see them as human beings because we want to protect our children so much, yeah. all of us. I mean, it, I, I struggle for anyone not to see a child crying and not have empathy for them and go, oh, I mean, I'm obviously screaming on a plane, you've got a different thing. But you know, so everyone has empathy for children. Everyone looks after children. Mm. So to actually hurt a child in everybody's mind is just that's the epitome of evil. There's mm. no excuse for it you know move the, get rid of them you know public hanging for them and all that sort of stuff is how we all feel so that it's, it's the hardest bit of your book it really it is. is it was also the hardest to write uh i mean genuine the, the two hardest bits were one was about slavery about sex slavery particularly yeah. because I, it's just so easy to i don't know for, for me it was so easy to picture myself being a victim in that situation and it just it crosses so many lines and it, it requires so much dehumanizing but the second was the pedophile chapter like i really had to step away from it and go, I need a break yeah. and I need to come back to this and I need to try and continue to stay neutral because it is really hard. Yeah, it is. Let's just finish on a slightly lighter note. Not that it's, it's well, it's kind of interesting, the, the word creepy. Um, I loved it, your definition of creepy in the book. Not knowing if we should be scared of someone is the uh, definition, mm -hmm. of, uh, definition, of uh, definition of creepy where we're sort of going, oh, they're are they evil? Are they creepy? And, they're that. and then your... Um, the, the examples are clowns, mm -hmm. <laughs> sex shop owners, and taxidermists. And I agree. To, I just started laughing when I read that because, yeah, you know, if you said, met someone and they said, I'm a taxidermist, you're like, what the hell are you yeah, doing? That's, yeah. that's creepy. But you've got to, you, you say, be warned that not all creepy people are creepy. 
Is that true? Not all creepy people are, are harmful. Harmful. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think our creepiness radars misfire all the time. Yeah. And generally it's, um, I, I mean, it's really hard to put your finger on what, what about someone makes them creepy. And so until quite recently, there actually wasn't any research on it either. And we sort of colloquially talked about, oh, that, that yeah. guy or that woman is so creepy. What do you mean by that? Is it the way they're looking at you? Is it how they're standing? Is it how they're dressed? Is it a combination of those things? Um, and the research uncovered some really f- interesting but also funny sort of almost stereotypes that emerged. Yeah. Um, and it, it had to do with this, yeah, like t- t- not knowing whether to trust. Because fear... Being afraid of something, someone is different than thinking someone's creepy. The creepiness is like, maybe I should be afraid. Um, but that can misfire in the context of just anyone who looks or acts differently than we do. And so this is where we need to be very careful not to, for example, stigmatize mentally ill individuals who are, for example, talking to themselves and assume that they're likely to be violent, distance ourselves physically and socially from them and um, to to just isolate them. So we need to, we need to be careful not to do that just because our creepiness reader is going careful, careful, careful. Yeah. And also if you're good looking, um, Mm -hmm. you're never evil. Are you? That's the thing. (laughs) The halo effect. If you're good looking, you can get away with doing whatever the hell you want. Not quite what I say. (laughs) Actually, you can be too good looking. I talk about in the book as well. Uh, again, if you, it's, there's a sweet spot of attractiveness and, and of course you're right on the, on the sweet spot there. I I love that example of the, the, that, um, I can't remember his name now, the criminal with the blue eyes who was done. They had his photo. He was doing, being in a gang, wasn't he? And yeah, doing stuff like that and hasn't he ended up marrying someone he, he also um, became a model yeah but didn't um, he marry someone in the end didn't he marry oh I don't know a rich person's daughter hasn't he married like oh I don't know <laughs> dreamy oh. dreamy McDreamy yeah the, the so he ends up doing offender. stuff like that listen thank you so much for coming in and um, uh, discussing this I, I, I recommend anyone to read this book it's the, I, I couldn't put it down and I suppose that's because I liked all the moral dilemmas. I also, like everybody else, likes reading about evil, I suppose. And that's it. But it really gets you thinking. As I say, we've just skimmed the surface here. There's so many uh, good issues in it. Um, Thoroughly recommend a read of this. When's it out again? Uh, February 7th. And uh, as a fun bonus fact, uh, there's a man peeing on a grave. There's death peeing on a grave on the front of it, which is actually drawn by my favorite artist, David Trigley. That's very impressive Um, that that's on the front of that. (laughs) But it's also just fun trying to to make sure that it's clear that it sort of goes between lighthearted topics and more serious ones. Yeah, no, it is. It's a real real, uh, journey through um, thinking your... Well, dilemmas, basically. Mm. Am I... And and I... You will... On reading this book, at some stage, saying, "Oh my God, I'm a bit evil sometimes," <laughs> which is what I found uncomfortable about it. So um, I'll talk to you about that off air. All right, brilliant. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank, Thank you so you. much for having me. Evil. Am I evil? No, does that sound evil? Oh, yeah, that was, yes, that. <laughs> Scary. If anyone's listening to this at night. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, fascinating you sound like you're trying to be posh. <laughs> fascinating conversation. That with Dr. Julia Shaw. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, evil, are you, I did, it's a comfort. Have you done anything evil? Not, that, not, uh, not off the top, not off the top of my head, <clears> but, but then I expect, 
but then I don't know. Do you think you are saintly? I mean, I haven't, I haven't read the book. Do you think? Well, do you know what the book that we, we didn't get into is? Is all the bit at the back end about um, people who were involved in uh, Nazi Germany who were actually Nazis involved with Hitler, mm. and what motivated them to do it? I won't ruin it for everybody, but basically, it's you know, are they evil? I mean. We it's it's really nice for us just to sit here and say everybody's evil we don't like but mm. you know there's uh, the science behind it all is very fascinating um, all the uh, the trials and stuff and of course that you know uh, and also stand well I won't go into it all you have to read it but you know standing up against evil is a big part of this book and it's it's interesting who are just bystanders and who are actually going to stand up against evil um, I. I've done one th- evil uh, do you think you're saintly I think I'm pretty saintly. no I doubt I'm saintly but I don't. I don't know if I'm evil. Yeah, but you're a good person, aren't you? I no, you are. Oh, you can't ju- you can't say that about yourself, can you? No, but you are. You're genuinely. Oh, that's very nice. No, you Thank are. You, very much, you are a, a, a genuinely nice person. However, you do have evil thoughts. Oh, then I have them. I reckon a hundred times a day. If we were, if we were prosecuted on our thoughts, you'd have I'd been. Be, put, I'd, you'd have been in the chair, wouldn't you? Already, yeah, you know. Yeah lethal injection or something yeah, yeah that have had to I mean do just away with just you. on the just on the journey here I had about 30 <laughs> I know because sometimes you vocalize them to me your thoughts <laughs> they're quite they're quite evil sometimes um, you've generally to do with traveling on the tube or train as in your case yeah um I, I did one thing which I I uh, is revenge evil what, Some, does, what does Dr. Julia Shaw say um well, the whole, uh, yeah, actually, you kind of interesting. You have to kind of read the book because all the way through it, there's never, this is evil, this isn't evil. She just explains the science behind why people do things. So I don't think there's ever a, ever a big thing on it about that. But do you want to hear my story? Go on, then. So somebody was very vocal about how horrible I am and what a nasty person I am. No, not nasty, sorry, but how terrible I am at my job. And right you know, hated me, just slagged me off constantly, just absolutely, you know, really did absolutely cane me constantly. And I tried to contact them at one stage and say, do you know what? There's a human behind this, this just tirade of obnoxious crap you're throwing at me. And, and they just, con- they, the, the guy talked to me and then, and then just, carried on and thought it was hysterical and he was in the my industry in the media yeah and then one day he had a bit of a breakthrough in his career right but sadly i was one of the gatekeepers who had to um say what they thought about the person coming through and i sort of indicated that i thought the person might be quite a murderer Actually, now I'm thinking about it. It wasn't that evil at all. I just, <laughs> yeah. I just said I didn't murder them, and I didn't, and I didn't say they're a murderer. No, I, was, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I just basically said um, I'd be slightly uncomfortable because they're quite a. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're quite. Um, they're an arsehole. Kind of, but quite aggressive people. Oh right, right. Person, sorry, it's quite an aggressive person. And, you know, the stuff they write on social media and stuff is just quite, you know, I'm not sure. It's I'm sort of basically... It's not good for the brand. 
Yeah, so it basically pinpointed to some of the stuff that they were actually. That, I think that that's actually to. a valid point to make. Right, you but don't then, want someone if you if you had you were working with Simon Rimmer and all Simon Rimmer did was troll people. You wouldn't you'd be going. True. This is a bit. Weird. I don't really want to do True. this. <laughs> but then the consequences of it were they didn't get the job, and then and then off the back of that. I just had a real guilt complex about it. I was like, well, I was the one who pinpointed to the fact you can't, that... You can't be horrible to people and not come back at you, especially in, in your industry. I always say it's that to everybody. I say that to everyone. Even if you absolutely despise someone, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Does not, you know, it doesn't matter. Just, just, just keep your mouth shut. Get on with it because one day they're going to be the person you might have to work with. And yeah. this stuff always comes... I do believe in that way. Actually, it's a, it's a real life example of karma. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, but then if you, but then something might something bad might happen to you because you did that. So yeah, but what I, I don't did, know if karma works like a sort of chain yes, reaction or whether it's but, just. Uh, but you know, what I did was that it, action, that action, and then it stops. But what I did was it bad because you just said you said it's justifiable because it was good. It was good. It was some good aspects to it as well for the yeah. for the brand. So maybe I was. Yeah. So maybe I can still keep. I probably my, have done the same thing. Can I keep my halo on? Yeah. <laughs> right. We've talked enough on this podcast. Um, uh, yeah. Go on. Yeah, we have. I was just, I was just going to say, it's a complete um, contrast to what the, the last, most, most of the podcast has been very highbrow and scientific. Yeah. And now we're talking absolute, nonsense. absolute nonsense. Yeah. I, I, I did think that was the interesting thing though about the, well, no, I don't want to get stuck into it again. Let's, no, don't. No, don't. no, no, because we, we're going to end up getting ourselves in trouble. That was actually, I must say that was quite a difficult conversation to have uh because on every i'm quite clumsy with my questions sometimes and sometimes with my speech and i sometimes thought is that what oh. that guy was saying <laughs> <laughs> oh do you know what you're not a million miles off he had a good point now i feel even worse now it's back to me oh, it's back to me now i feel bad Come on, let's just you're end right. this let's just end this now i mean right, the podcast listen uh, yeah not my life if if you want to write in please write in and tell us everything you think about um making evil or anything else if you've got any dilemmas if you think you're being evil let us know um and uh um you can the email address is dearlovejoepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at uh tip your name <laughs> i had to do so much thinking mark during that interview not to stitch myself up <laughs> Oh dear! You've probably done it in the outro. Probably. <laughs> anyway, love you all. Oh, that sound like a boy band member. Love you. I love my fans. I love my fans. For the time being, we'll speak to you very soon. Peace and love, joy. Bye. Bye.